None of us like to be exhorted or rebuked by other people, at least 99% of us. We don't typically take well to critique. We don't like our flaws and our wrongs to be pointed out. We don't like looking broken or incompetent in the eyes of other people around us. But there's one thing that takes our don't like and turns it into absolutely despise. When we receive unsolicited criticism from other people, and it's when the very thing that they accuse us of is an obvious deficiency in their lives. It's the financial planner who is facing bankruptcy. It's the marriage counselor who's just had an affair. It's the parental expert whose kids are all prodigals. It's the life coach whose personal habits are a complete mess. But when we see that, we want to scream and say, why don't you get your own house in order first before you pretend to show others like me how to do it? And that's precisely the message today. Today, we're continuing our journey through the minor prophets. Pastor Dave last week batted lead off with a masterful look at the prophet Habakkuk. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at Nahum and Micah and Haggai and Zephaniah, some of the least known books in all the Bible, but not the least important. Remember, they're called minor prophets, not because they're of minor importance, but because of their length. The minor prophets were able to be written on one scroll, but they are major league messages from God. The prophets speak a bold word from 2,500 up to 3,000 years ago to us, to God's people even today. And it's important for us to remember that although the Bible was not originally written to us, it is most certainly written for us. The Bible speaks today. And the New Testament testifies to that. In fact, in one passage, one of several in the New Testament, it's made explicit that the Old Testament matters is God's word to us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Now these things occurred, referring back to uh, events in the Old Testament, as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, referring to Jesus and his appearance. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In other words, the Old Testament is very much for our instruction, for our benefit today. Those writers speak from God, and they speak for God. So when you reject, when I reject what the prophets say, I'm actually rejecting what God says, because God speaks through them. And there's, there's kind of an overriding theme through all the prophets. that They're signaling the salvation that's available in God and the judgment of God that is coming, and they serve as an invitation and a warning to us. Now, with that background... We give our attention today to the prophet Amos. So turn there in your Bibles. 
I'll give you about four minutes to find Amos in your Bible. It's on page 785 if you get one of the Pew Bibles. One of our hosts or hostesses would be glad to give a hard copy to you there, 785. If you brought your own Bible, and I hope you do, that's what the table of contents is for. There are 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. So it's the third one of those 12. Take some time and turn there to Amos. Several times in the New Testament, Amos is quoted. We'll get to that a little bit later. But there's a verse that's probably more famous than any in Amos that connects with American history. Over 50 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. included that verse in his speech, his address, I Have a Dream. He said, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream or mighty river. Righteousness and justice, two very common themes in the prophets, are front and center in Amos. So we do well to heed what God says. Uh, our, our structure today will begin with a historical context, then look at the prophecy itself, and then move to contemporary application for us. And I want to start by giving you the, the main point, the big idea up front. The bottom of your outline, if you're following along, gracepolaris.org slash program or on your worship program, commit to live as God's chosen people and prioritize our conduct over that of the culture. I'll say that again. Commit to live as God's chosen people and prioritize our conduct over that of the culture. We begin with historical context, the pitfalls of prosperity. Amos was written in the 8th century BC, before Christ, which means in the 700s before Christ. Probably between about 760 B.C. and 750 B.C., it was during the reign of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam II in Israel. Now, it's important to remember how the prophets and the Old Testament fit together. We see all of the prophets backloaded in the Old Testament, the major prophets and the minor prophets, but actually they were interspersed in what we would call the historical section, uh, books like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And, and, and so we can get confused thinking that they came a long time after that. No, they were part of the historical era, God's people, the Jews in the Old Testament. And Amos was one of them. Now, during the decades of the 8th century, from about 780 to 745 B.C., Judah and Israel were experiencing a, a great time of wealth and prosperity unseen since the days of Solomon. This is a, the time of the divided kingdom. Judah, uh, two of the tribes from Jerusalem south, and, and Israel, ten of the tribes roughly from Jerusalem north. And even Amidst the divided kingdom, this was a time of peace and prosperity. This is a time where those kingdoms thrive. And Israel in particular, those 10 tribes to the north, was especially able to benefit from the time. Now, recent history in our country has offered a lot of the same thing, peace and prosperity. It's kind of the quintessential American phrase. And if my math is correct, 246 years we in America have been blessed with a freedom and opportunity that is almost unparalleled in world history. 
We have so much to be grateful for on a weekend like this, and it's the grace of God. Especially for those of us who have only lived since World War II, and that's about 90% of us here, our lifetimes have been staggeringly comfortable. You and I enjoy extreme privileges. We have known so much peace. We've lived in a country in recent decades of unrivaled power. We are awash in prosperity. Peace and prosperity. Not just something that we've experienced in many ways in recent decades, but something that they experienced in Israel during those decades, Amos's decades. The economy was humming along. Enemies were retreating. Society was thriving. The outlook was promising. It was a great time to be alive. It was a great time to control your own destiny. Or so you thought. Even better, people saw all of this peace and prosperity and thought this must be God's divine stamp of approval on us. One of our really good study Bibles, the ESV study Bible, says the Israelites took this wealth and prosperity to be unmistakable signs of the blessing of God. But in fact, their present wealth and power was not evidence of the blessing of God. They were actually under the curse of God because of their egregious breaches of their covenant with him. Their worship of God was little more than attempts at magical manipulation of him, much like the religion of their pagan neighbors. They were thriving, and they thought that God was satisfied. Wrongly. Along comes Amos the prophet. Now, before preparing for this message in recent weeks, my familiarity with Amos was quite modest. Reading it a couple of times when I've read through the Bible in a year, and Amos was part of that. In fact, When someone would mention the name Amos, I would be more likely to associate that with one of my nephews. Um, Our our third child is named Cedric, uh, not a very common name in some circles, but pretty common in parts of Europe, in France, in Ireland, and in our own country, more so in African-American communities, a more unique name. But it was rivaled, and then some, when my brother and his wife named their third child Amos. Amos is a delightful nephew of mine. He turns 15 in a few days, uh, a likable, unassuming personality. All of that couldn't be said, though, of the prophet Amos. Yes, he was unassuming for a while, likable for a while. He describes himself at the beginning of the prophecy here as a shepherd from Tekoa. That's a village not far from Jerusalem, which means that as a shepherd, as a farmer, Amos was not part of the priestly class. He was not part of the elites of Israel. In fact, he wasn't from Israel at all. He was from Judah. So when he delivers this prophecy to Israel, he in some ways is a foreigner to them. And yet Amos, this commoner, was exactly who God wanted. And God has a habit of that in in the Bible and in history of using the most unexpected, the most ordinary of people to deliver the most extraordinary of messages. We get a taste of that when we look in the New Testament. Paul refers to that, speaking of those who go with the message of God, the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not 
to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And the same could be said of the prophet Amos. If you look there in the first couple of verses, Amos's prophecy comes two years before an earthquake, the time of Uzziah and Jeroboam. We don't know much about this, but you can be sure that his hearers two years later were reminded of what was said by Amos, that God's judgment was coming. And you know, when when earthquakes happen, natural disasters and metaphorical earthquakes in our own lives, it reveals something about the heart of people. You want to know what you're made of? Encounter difficulty. Suffer. You'll find out. Verse 2 describes graphically the power of Amos' prophecy, these words from the Lord. The Lord roars, thunder from Jerusalem, pastures drying up, top of a mountain giving way. This is a hold on to your pants moment because God is speaking. So here's a brief outline of the nine chapters of Amos. First chapter and a half, verse three of chapter one to chapter two, verse five. Amos is the megaphone of God's judgment on the nations, the peoples around, the pagans. And yet Amos is just warming up for the big pitch to come. Chapters two, about halfway through, all the way through the end of chapter six, are God's judgment on Israel herself. Lots of illustrations, lots of words in those chapters. God God speaks of the things he's done where Israel's not responded. God, God speaks of the things that he could have done, that he hasn't done to Israel's favor. In fact, it gets so bad that at one point near the end of chapter seven, the priest Amaziah starts defending the kingdom and the king Jeroboam and tells Amos to shut up and go home. He's had enough. His words are too much to bear. They're unwelcome. The reaction to the message of Amos is to shoot the messenger. And not much has changed in life, has it? If you don't like the message, do away with the messenger. See, these people in Israel had heard about this day of the Lord coming and they thought it would be great because all of their enemies would be judged. They weren't prepared for the fact that they too were accountable and they would be judged. And religious people sometimes think the same thing ever since. We think we're good with God. We think he's favorable to us. We think we've earned our prosperity. We think our sins are minimal. We think that all things considered... God must be delighted with us. He's like a really good grandpa. You know, he's lost some of his mobility. He's lost some of his vision. He's lost some of his judgment. But he thinks those kids, they're the best. And they're not. See, the Jews thought that their heredity was their trump card. One pastor of our day says the Israelites thought their background meant they were immune from God's judgment. They didn't realize that great privilege meant great accountability. Their accountability wasn't minimized. It was heightened because of who they are. To whom much is given, much is expected. You know, it's possible to have great privileges and to fail miserably. And that was the verdict on Israel. The day of the Lord, far from being a day of light, was going to be a day of darkness. Israel found itself in the crosshairs of the judgment 
of God. And Amos said they needed to get their own house in order before they concerned themselves with the disarray of the nations around them. That's some historical background. Let's look at the text itself. Three divine announcements. The first, judgment on the nations. First chapter and a half. The the art of persuasion, especially the art of prosecution, is an important one. You, You put together evidence and you construct it in a way that the other person doesn't have an out, doesn't have a an alibi, an excuse. They have to see the truth. Even if it's hard to accept, it's inescapable. And that's what Amos does here. It's a master class in persuasion and prosecution. Amos begins his sermon with a clever strategy. He told Israel what they wanted to hear. He began by denouncing the sins of Israel's enemies, which is always a popular theme. People love to hear preachers attack ideas and folks they do not like. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, get them. So the first chapter and a half, Amos is here's Uh, receive this damning indictment about the nations, the pagans around them, ones they despised. Sevenfold, we read something like this. For the three sins of, fill in the blank, even for four, I will not relent. And God speaks judgment against Damascus, verse 3, Gaza, verse 6, Tyre, verse 9, Edom, verse 11, Ammon, verse 13, Moab, chapter 2, verse 1, even Judah, chapter 2, verse 4. First six of those pagan nations, the seventh of those Judah, kind of like an estranged sibling for Israel. But all of them were found guilty, wrong living, wrongdoing by the Lord. And so Israel was relieved. They rejoiced. They celebrated because they were not condemned. Hallelujah. We can be a lot like that. We look around at other people. We see all their flaws, all their faults. We watch their face plants. We're like a good biologist looking in a microscope and we see it all in vivid color. All your problems. And we look and we say, guilty, guilty, guilty. Thank God that I'm not like them. We're not full of pride and and envy and wrath and laziness and greed and gluttony and lust, or at least not much of it. We've learned to keep those things secret behind closed doors. Yeah, we don't lie much. We don't steal a lot. We don't cheat often. We don't slander or gossip, not in public. We don't hoard things so that others see. We've learned the art of respectable sins. We've even learned how to keep it under wraps. They don't. You can almost hear the the hooting and hollering of those in Israel. That's right, Amos. Amen, Amos. And they were really pleased with him up to this point. Because Amos, the prophet, was reinforcing all that they had believed, that God was going to judge all those godless nations around them. They were exonerated. Free at last, they thought. Free at last. Peace, prosperity, we deserve it. Innocent, obviously us. And yet, God was saving his harshest judgment 
for Israel. Judgment on Israel beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2 shows that Amos wasn't finished. In fact, he was just warming up because the most damning evidence comes now. End of chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, which speaks, Amos does, of the sins that violate the covenant that God had uniquely formed with his people, Israel. Amos chapter 3, verse 1 reads, Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Warren Wiersbe had written, nothing would make the Jews happier than to see the Lord judge the surrounding nations. But when Amos denounced Judah and Israel, that was a different story. And that is the bulk of Amos's prophecy. If you read through there, much of it includes historical details that we don't understand, we don't have connections to. There are analogies and metaphors that are very vivid that we can understand. And his readers the Israelites hear that he's talking to them. If you look at chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, a very graphic reading. Condemnation, destruction are around the corner. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, you see that he speaks harshly against those who are apathetic to those in need. So many things that God has done and so little response, so little repentance from Israel again and again, the Lord declares, yet you have not returned to me. Yet you have not returned to me. Look at chapter 5. Amos rebukes those people that they have not lived up to God's standards for virtue, for morality. And when those people fail to live in righteousness and justice and truth and integrity, the anger of the Lord burns. It did then, it does now. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. He pronounces a woe on them. Go to chapter 6, verse 1. He pronounces another woe on them. Amos describes those who live in comfort as those who think they have God's approval. They think peace and prosperity. It must mean that God is full of acceptance and approval for who we are. They think blessing. Because everyone around them is commending them. God thinks, whoa, God condemns them. Kind of reminds me of something that Jesus, who was a prophet but far more, said in his day. Matthew 23. Remember this, Jesus speaking to the religious elite? Verse 1, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. There's a special place in God's judgment 
for those who parade and flaunt their spiritual virtue and yet don't live in the way God designed. See, the fundamental obligation for God's people Israel was to love the Lord their God with all they were and to practice in their lives the kind of righteousness and judgment, uh, justice that reflects the Lord. Look at what the Lord says about them in chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The Lord says, I've had it with your religious pretense. I want to see religious practice. Remember, as said elsewhere, it's a broken and contrite heart that the Lord does not despise. Empty religious sacrifices that don't reflect a humble heart are an abomination to God. Put simply, Israel's brand of religion allowed them to sin and maintain a sense of God's favor at the same time. They love their sin and they love their religion. So they constructed a religion that let them have both. We can too. Empty religion is a problem of human nature. It's not something that was newly invented. We, we see this again and again through time around the globe. We invent all kinds of ways to live religiously, even to show our religious identity, but to be hollow in our hearts. We participate in religious functions. We make moral claims. We, we do some charitable giving. We, we talk in spiritual ways. All kinds of behaviors that are supposed to signal all is well. And none of those are inherently bad. But when our claims, our pretenses, don't match our conduct, our values, then our spiritual life is out of alignment. And sometimes it's just pure hypocrisy. One of our pastors, Dan Green, said this week, it's very easy for us to have the exterior of our lives look good and yet be empty and rebellious in God's sight. God wants the interior part of us to be righteous and just. He doesn't just want lip service. He wants the whole heart. God wants integrity. And he makes that clear. Amos chapter 5, verse 25, 26, 27. God doesn't want us just checking off religious boxes. While at the same time, we practice idolatry with the other hand. When that happens, it's the practice of God again and again to give people over to the folly of their ways. Because God is an unwilling polygamist. Let me say that again. God is an unwilling polygamist. Polygamist. He, he will not tolerate promiscuous people. It's no wonder that Stephen, over in Acts chapter 7, before he's stoned, cites Amos as he refers to his spiritual forefathers who said this and did 
that. Move on in Amos chapter 7, 8, and 9. Give these multiple visions that Amos has about the Lord's judgment. Chapter 7, that Israel would be pillaged. That peace and prosperity, so apparent now, would give way to abuse and subjugation later. Chapter 8, that God's punishment would come in direct fashion on them. That the providence of God and the grace of God would for a time be replaced with natural disasters and, and personal calamities. And that one day there would come a time in which God would no longer speak. God would be silent. They wouldn't hear from God. Chapter 8, verse 11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to seas and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God will go silent, and it happened in history. Just like in personal relationships, sometimes the worst punishment with someone you love or someone you need is the silent treatment. And Amos said, it's coming. And yet that punishment, yet that pillaging, yet that silence would not be forever. Why? Because of who God is. That God is a promise-making, covenant-keeping God, and that when God prunes his people, he will also show mercy again. He won't abandon his people forever because he made a covenant, and he cannot. It's a long prophecy, a depressing prophecy, a convicting prophecy, a despairing prophecy, a paralyzing prophecy. But it's a prophecy that at its very end, ends with hope. God gives the last word, Amos 9, 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Do you hear what Amos, what the Lord is promising? The kingdom of David will return. The covenant will be kept. A good king will rule again. A Messiah, a savior, will come in God's name and rule over the nations. Restoration will come for God's people, the remnant of Israel. There will be judgment to be sure, and it will be terrible and deserved. But on the other side of judgment will come prosperity and abundance and harvest and shalom. And that is centered, Amos predicts, the prophets predict, in the one who comes 
in God's name, Jesus himself. See, the point isn't that God would judge Israel in finality, but that the judgment would be a tool for the blessing to come. And that blessing is and was Jesus. And one day God will restore his people. He will restore their place. He will restore their prosperity. And one day they will be a light to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will know that same God. Acts 15 alludes to the prophecy of Amos. But first, there is judgment. Deserved, earned, perfect justice. Because when God's people fail to live as he intends, as he empowers, judgment should be expected. How do we apply this? What's this look like in 2022? How do God's people today take the ancient prophecy of Amos? Several things that I might say. First of all, the importance of accountability, that every person, every nation must answer to God. No one gets a free pass. Complacency, the warning, God's people who live in comfort and luxury can have a false sense of security. And that's true today, maybe especially today. All is well. Look, we thrive. Is all well? The problem of hostility, social injustice, and the oppression of the poor is an affront to God. There are simply too many places in Amos and too many places in the Bible for us to ignore that. How we treat those who are marginalized matters to God. Hypocrisy, superficial religion without a sincere heart, belittles God. God's not interested in show. He's interested in heart. But as we look at these things for our day in our lives, I want to conclude by highlighting two things that I think arise from Amos's prophecy for us. The first is this, God's holy people pursue spiritual righteousness. God's holy people pursue spiritual righteousness, not just outward actions, but a, an inward heart that reflects itself in outward actions. We don't pit our hearts and our habits against each other. What God hates are habits that don't reflect a heart. It's a certain kind of dissonance like, like a, a conductor would have as he looks at the, the stanzas, the score in front of him, and the music that he's hearing played by the instruments is something different. Something doesn't add up there. When God hears our claims and he sees our lives, it doesn't add up. That's what Amos is saying to God's people there. God looks for a match. In fact, God so frustrated says in satire, Amos 4, 4, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. And God says, I want none of it. God detests that in Amos' day, in Jesus' day, in our day. And the conclusion isn't to give up religion, to become irreligious or agnostic or atheistic. No, it's to be full of integrity. It's to lead our lives in a manner that reflects our lips. 
God wants our religiosity to overflow from our hearts. Friends, hypocrisy is easy to find. Holiness is not. When people look at my life, when people look at your life, when people look at our lives, do they see more hypocrisy or do they see increasing holiness? Oh God, may it be the second. If the first is more of a vertical direction, our relationship with God, the second is more of a horizontal direction, our relationship, our treatment of others. God's covenant people practice moral justice. It means that we do what's right for everyone who is made in God's image. And Amos speaks of this repeatedly. Amos chapter 5, verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And that has practical effect in how the people of God live in any age, including our own. I'd like to suggest some ways in which God's people in our day live that out. We advocate for the unborn because from conception on, those persons are known and loved by God. We advocate for the aged and the infirm because they remain known and loved by God. Quality of life is something that God decrees, not something that we just arbitrarily decide. We advocate for marginalized people because they are valued by God. They need the protections of justice. They need our generosity. We advocate for those who are poor, those who are abandoned, those who are disabled. Why? Because God loves them deeply. And we ought to love and care for those whom God loves. We care for the victims of evil. Because when violence is done to them, it betrays the design of God. Those victims deserve dignity and justice and healing. We care for the perpetrators of evil, not because their actions are good. No, they're an affront to God, and we ought to say so. But we advocate for their treatment as people because God doesn't write off as junk people who breathe and talk and live. They need to be rescued too, often from themselves. And civil justice for them doesn't preclude personal compassion to them. We care for those whose conduct and whose behavior and whose values and whose worldviews are diametrically opposed to the Bible. Maybe you felt this past month or in many months that you've seen or heard from a lot of them. We value them, not because God approves of everything that they do or choose, no, he's angered by any rebellion against his ways. And we can say that. But God gives them dignity like he gives us dignity because they, like we, are image bearers of God. And they need the gospel. <laughs> just like I do. And just like you do. God's people recognize their own neediness and they recognize the neediness of other people 
And they are glad to take that message to other image bearers of God, whatever they choose. Many years later, another member of God's people, another follower of Jesus Christ, wrote in description how God's people think and live. And I conclude with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Peter writes to believers, the church, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, hear the language, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Instead, instead, rather, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, as you get your house in order by the power of God's Spirit, God will use you to be an advertisement of his character to the world. Commit to live as God's chosen people and prioritize our conduct over that of the culture. When we look here to make sure this reflects God, God is masterfully capable of making changes there. Let's pray. God in heaven, we need words like this from you, not because they're comfortable, but because they're important. Thank you that you speak to us in all times. Thank you for the message of Amos to your people 3,000 years ago, and thank you that you are a God who still speaks through your word and your spirit today. God, we desire to be people who reflect you well, who show the world the character you have. We want to be people who are both full of confidence in you and full of humility because we recognize apart from you, we can do nothing well, which means we need you. Thank you that you're not only a sovereign, powerful God, but you're a father who grafts us into your family and then equips and enables us to live more and more like Jesus did. Father, we need you and we want you. Help us to be representative of you as your children. In Jesus' name.